Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge-hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. I'm joined by the ever-dutiful, as Don would say, to paraphrase him, Mr Peter Neal. So, Pete, how the devil are you, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, mate. You? Keeping really good. Cheers, mate. Keeping busy, uh, as I'm sure we'll allude to very shortly um, over the past few weeks. Much planning for the festival, amongst other things. But yeah, keeping keeping good. Can't complain. All is all is well, as they say. And uh, what have you been up to lately? You been up to anything exciting? Uh, well, we've done our first documentary of 2023, which is the Battle of Cropty Bridge, which is out now on YouTube. Just thought I'd plug that in there before we go any further. <laughs> um, and like you doing the behind the scenes stuff for the festival, um, sending out emails, making contacts with people, then up for like future projects as well. Um, trying to make some contacts and, uh, we were speaking just before we come on here um yeah we had some good contacts today come through which could be very promising for the future what about yourself of course we've been out filming Cropperty bridge that was great just two weeks ago now feels longer though i don't know why but yeah two weeks ago we're out filming Cropperty bridge uh battle from the english civil war as pete said it, it's available now we'll put the link in the bio you can watch it completely free of charge learn all about uh, one of the last real royalist victories of the... A bit of a tongue twist, that was. The last real royalist victories of the uh, First English Civil War because there was more than one, contrary to uh, popular belief. Um, but yeah, been busy editing that, marketing it, of course, putting it out there. Um, various other bits and bobs for our members club. And uh, we've had a murder mystery at the West Midlands Police Museum, which was uh, really, really good fun, something a bit different. Uh, and we are back at the West Midlands Police Museum on the 18th of February for our Villainous Victorians weekend, which is going to be cracking. So 18th of February at West Midlands Police Museum. If anyone wants to come along, if you're in Birmingham, come and say hello. Um, myself and Pete will be there and a few other, a few others from the Living History UK in a sanctum all going to plan. But yeah, knee deep in bits and bobs for the festival, and uh, yeah, we've had some. We've had a cracking day today. All the uh, messages and emails of exchange from you know certain individuals and entities who will remain at this moment in time nameless, which has been fantastic. It's growing. People are really standing up and taking notice of, of what we're all about, and and just getting engaged with history really. And coming along to see the festival is literally seeing history brought to life. You've got the story of the British soldier from 1645 to 2012 coming to life be, before your very eyes. You'll be able to see and smell and potentially even taste um, what what life was like in each particular. Uh, period as well so that's going to be really really cool we've got everything from the english civil war to the rifle brigade of the crimean war world war one 
World War Two and Iraq and Afghan and everything else in between. It's just too much to remember and too much to put into a sentence before running out of air. So that leads me on very nicely to introduce this uh, this episode. So Pete is going to be talking about one of his um, sort of uh, battles, engagements of, of the Great War that he has a very keen interest in. And if my memory serves me well, Peter, a little birdie tells me you might just be going over to Belgium in the next couple of weeks, mightn't you? I am indeed, yes. I will be, I'll be our man in Belgium in the next few weeks or so. Yeah, so we're going over there. Bit bit of a a mini break, really, going over there for four days uh, on a bit of a mini break. But we are going to be filming over there. So I've uh, conscripted, yeah. I've conscripted the help of uh, two friends of mine and fans of the channel as well. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to be putting them through their paces on the filming locations. We're going to do one episode because uh, I don't want to ruin their time away as well by uh, dragging them across those different locations just to uh, for my own self-gratification of making our content. So uh, I think uh, one episode will be enough for them, I think. <laughs> Well, I'm really jealous that you're going over there because I, I haven't really had the opportunity to go and explore the battlefields of, of Belgium or France from the Great War extensively. And I am I am uh, green with envy, I have to be honest. And I know that you guys are going to have a great time. Of course, you've got Chuckles and uh, Brad going with you. Memory serves me well, which is going to be awesome because they're great guys. Chuckles, mm. for, for those who don't know, is uh, the guy who's usually behind the camera. Uh, operating a camera and dealing with the sound and he is largely what one of the um, unsung heroes of living history uk so i know he'll be doing us doing us proud over on international duty he unfortunately he can't make it he's had to pull out uh oh. due to work commitments yeah so i've uh i've managed to draft in um uh, a fan of the channel and also a friend of mine as well pete so he's uh He's he's coming along, so uh, yeah. So that's why he got got two novices behind behind the camera <laughs> and <laughs> doing the sound as well. <laughs> oh well, this is going to be very interesting to uh, to edit when the time comes. So I'm looking yeah, forward to seeing is, that footage. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. We'll see how greyer I've got when I got back. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, I'm really looking forward to. It. I'm, I'm not going to spill too many beans uh, on the podcast about exactly what you're going to be filming. Um, but it's safe to say it's going to be definitely worth worth catching. It's going to be a bit of a bonus episode for Living History UK. And it's also going to be our first international uh, documentary as well. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be up on our members club by the end of February and um, on all of the platforms after then. I never, so, really, I never thought about it like that, actually. Yes, it is. It is going to be our first international one. I never even thought about it until you just mentioned it. It's quite, it's quite amazing. We're going global. We're going global. It's, uh, it's, it is exciting, and I, I'm, I have to admit, I am good. I'm not, not joining you, but hey ho, such is, such is life. But uh, maybe that's... later in the year, we'll try and do another one later in the year. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the documentaries I'd love to do. I, I, I must admit, I really love the Battlefields of Britain series that we're we're currently rolling with at the minute. I'm loving that, and I'd love to go and do. Um, some of the battles over in in Ireland, um, that would be that would be fantastic. I know John Shanahan will be um, be loving me saying that, but going to do like the Battle of the Boyne would be absolutely fantastic. And you know, back over obviously here in the UK, Culloden's definitely on the to visit vi- uh, to visit list, as is Sedgemoor as well, because that's one of those battles that not many people know about. So, um, if you like learning about battles and battlefields of Britain, then um, go and check our YouTube account out. However. Tonight's podcast episode is not about a battle in Britain, but it is a battle that involves Britain and other countries, for that matter, from the Commonwealth. Uh, The Third Battle of Epes. So this is largely known as the Battle of Passchendaele. Now, I know Pete's going to talk a lot more in detail about this, but I know vague bits about the Battle of Passchendaele from a personal perspective. I obviously know when it was and who was involved, but I think it's always quite interesting when you speak to someone who's even just a little bit interested in the First World War or knows nothing about it, when you say to them, you know, close your eyes and picture a World War One battlefield, the battlefield that person nine times out of ten will picture is a muddy quagmire with uh, tree roots everywhere, shell holes full of water, guys with waders on with water past, past their knees, 
And that's the typical Mobile One battlefield we think of. The, the honest truth is that's only a few battlefields. But the reason why that's important in tonight's episode is because that sort of picture that people conjure up in the mind's eye is essentially Passchendaele. So, Pete, what is Passchendaele and why is it uh, a subject that you're deeply interested in? Yeah, you're absolutely right um, in what you're saying, Steve, where if someone, yeah, if you say to somebody, what is the First World War? Give me a picture. And they do. They always conjure up those images from Passchendaele and everyone thinks that's what it looked like the whole war when it, it didn't. Um, that happened a lot. Well, I'll say a lot later, but that happened, you know, sort of halfway through the campaign. It got really bad, especially towards the end. Um, that's where a lot of these images uh, come from. But when they, but when the when the attack started on the thirty uh, first of July, nineteen seventeen, those positions that they left from were actually filled. You know, they were fields, very much like down on the Somme sector. You know, that bit of no man's land, untouched. You know. Yeah, there was shell holes and things like that, but you know, there's a lot of photographs just before the offensive, and you can see grass growing over the sides of the trenches. But yeah, so yeah, the Battle of Passchendaele. So, uh, I'm you know, I'll, I'll, it'll be more of an overview of Passchendaele because it's because with Passchendaele itself, it's so easy to go down tangents of different alleyways of this, that, and the other, and all these little things that happen there. But so what I'm going to try and do is sort of maybe just do um, more of an overview of, of the battle itself. So to start off with Passchendaele, we can't really talk about Passchendaele until we talk about the Messines offensive. Um, so the, the Messines offensive happened between the 7th and the 14th of June, 1917. So this is about three weeks before the Passchendaele Offensive. And this is just south of Epes, this happens, along the Messines Ridge. The premise of it, in a nutshell, again, without going down different burrows of information, the premise of it was, was the straight in the line. That's what Messines was all about. Uh, some of you might be sat there scratching your heads going, oh, I think I know about Messines. And yeah, there's something really important about that or some, you know, um, now what makes Messines famous is the fact of the 20 odd mines that they laid underneath the ridge. So going from Hill 60 all the way down to Messines, um, they planted these 20, I think it was 23 mines, something like that, but only 19 of them went off, um, when the offensive happened, but they did the job they needed to do. Uh, they're very varied in sizes, these mines, um, because they all had different jobs they had, had to do, uh, either taking out various strong points or sections out. So they did vary in size. And if you go down to the Messines Ridge today and you go along that line, uh, you can still see some of those uh mine craters. Some are quite small and then some are quite big, <laughs> like seriously big. Um, and that was a roaring success to First World War standards. Um, you know, when those mines went up, it was predicted that roughly around about ten thousand Germans were caught up in the explosive in the explosion. So those nineteen mines that went off in a, an accumulation, they believe about ten thousand Germans were actually on top of those mines when they uh, when the uh, switch was pulled, so to speak. So with that. The offensive only took a week. Um, we took the positions, withheld the German counterattacks, and held that line and dug in. So what what's happened now? What I mean by straightening the line is that the Eeps Eep sector was known as the Eep Salient, and the reason why it's called the Eep Salient because it bows out. So you got this straight line running down from the north coast. When it gets to Eeps, it bows out. It basically just does a, a curve around Eeps and then it continues going south. And it, you know, it's not a complete straight line because it was never a complete straight line. But this bow to the south, it sort of goes in on itself and then comes back out again. And that's what they wanted to do because with that peninsula or the salient, you're having to defend that on three sides. And they wanted to just bring that up. So all they got to do is just defend two sides. So you've got to defend the top part of that salient and then the front of it. 
So that's why they wanted to do that. And they they wanted to they've been and they've got so this started planning uh back in 1916. So Hay could already had this seed planted in his head that he wanted an offensive up in the north, up at Eaps, to bring that line up together. There was attempts that happened in like 1914 to try and strike the line out, but it was very they're always very poorly planned um and never worked out. But this was the plan that he wanted. So that's the Messines offensive. So Messines is done. We've got that high ground at Messines. The line has been straightened up. So now we need to, now another offensive needs to happen. So the year before is the tragedy of the Battle of the Somme, or, you know, it's, or as I like to call it, it's a, um, a, def- a defeat to victory. You know, it, you know, the battle lasted a lot longer than the 1st of July. That was the main um defeat of the battle but it, it ended up becoming a form of victory towards the end however while this was happening uh well before that offensive happened um the french apo- approached Hague and they said we want you to do this offensive and he's like no 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 and that isn't happening because i need to do an offensive up in the eep sector so that's what i want to do that's what i'm concentrating my my new uh, Kitchener's army to do this is where this is where I want them because he he's planning machines that's what he's doing and potentially then to move on to Passchendaele obviously the French overruled him and he had to go and do the Somme offensive but it didn't deter him he still went through with the plan the year after did machine and then he needed Passchendaele but why did he need Passchendaele what was the actual concept of Passchendaele well. Again, without going to loads and loads of detail, he wanted the high ground. So he wanted the last piece of high ground um, of Eeps because they've been denied it for a good three or oh, two years. Um, so he wanted to get that high ground in Passchendaele, which is the uh, sort of the, the Passchendaele Ridge, the uh, Brunsinder Passchendaele Ridge. That's what he wanted. Because when you actually stand up there, you can actually see eeps from that ridge um so he wanted all that land because then on the other side of it it kind of goes into like a bowl and from there you'd look straight down into the german positions which is something that doesn't really happen very often on the western front when it comes to uh the like for the allies because we're usually at the bottom of the high ground but anyway that's one of the reasons why he wanted it second reason is is that u-boats are starting to cause issues out in the channel so all the supplies that we're getting from say america uh, troop movements to other countries as well. The U-boats are starting uh, causing problems. So by taking Passchendaele, they could then spur north from Passchendaele up to the north coast and take those major U-boat pens that are going out, uh, facing out into the English Channel. That is the end goal of this. So Passchendaele is the main, ob- is the first objective. Second objective is to push up to that north coast and take those U-boat pens to deny the U-boats, use of the English Channel. And of course, this sort of miniature battle is only a small drop in the ocean of the whole war that's going on, not just on the Western Front, but all over the world for that matter. Um, But this, so Passchendaele, as it's going to be, is is, is being seen as the, as narrowed down to the place that's going to force this um, ultimate breakthrough, in essence. So this is going to be the place where it's decided the war is going to be Essentially, the start with the end of the war, it's going to start here. That's what they're thinking of in their mind's eyes. So, what was what was the plan that they had in mind with the Battle of Passchendaele? Yeah, you're absolutely right because Haig believed that the war will be won on the Western Front. It's not going to be won in Salonica. It's not going to be run won in Mesopotamia. The Western Front is where the war is going to end, um, and that's why this big plan is being put into action. So the plan in general is um, you'd hope that they'd have learnt their lessons from the Somme, really, and these new lessons sort of gained from uh, the Messines Offensive three weeks before. Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) So you've got uh, General Goff. He's been put into command of the base of the battle, in a sense. Um, 
with General Plumer at his side, the great General Plumer. Uh, more about those two a little bit later on. Um, so the the idea of the offensive was is that the problem with that sector from getting to from Eeps, so where we are at the Bellwed, sort of the Bellwed Ridge, that's what we're holding. That's the last ridge before Eeps, and we held that tooth and nail because if the Germans had that, they would look straight down into Eeps and that would be no good for us. So we held on to that ridge since uh, 1915 because the Germans beat us back to it in the Second Battle of Eeps. But anyway, so we're, we're going from that staging point. People think that part of the world is very, very flat, and it isn't. It's undulating. I love that word, undulating. It's undulating ground. And it's very gentle slopes, but these gentle slopes are great tactical advantages. And it basically, they kind of goes in. So these ridges that are formed, there's about three of them, but each of those ridges are heavily defended. So you've got the first one, which is uh, Pilcom. So you've got, uh, yeah, Pilcom Ridge, which was the first one. Um, then you've got things like the Menin Ridge and the Brunsinder Ridge, and then you've got Passchendaele itself. Um so these are the ridges that need to be taken. So they are the main objectives to go for. And this is what got this is what Goff's saying. He gets, so each phase of this operation, he's going, it's it's base, it's the, these ridges. The ridges are what we need. So that's so that that is what they're going for. So we've got about a two to three week bombardment to start off proceedings, which is a lot better than what it was down on the back of the Somme when they just had a week. Um so yeah, so we've got so we've got an immense amount of cannon fire heading over to the German lines. And that's happening for three weeks solid as well. So this is one of the reasons why um, later on, when we see these pictures of this absolute um, quad mile, you know, lunar lands landscape of these tree stubs and all the rest of it, it's because of this shell fire that was happening just before this offensive took place. So once that had, uh, so once the far, once the artillery had done their job, the assault went in on the 31st of July. Um, so that was the battle of Pilcom Ridge. Now, Passchendaele is the battle itself, but with Passchendaele, there's loads of little battles that happen within the big battle, which is not uncommon during the first world war. So you've got things like the battle of, Pilkham Ridge, the Battle of Zonnebeek, the Battle of Tyne Cot, uh, the Battle of Menin Road. Uh, um, obviously, then ultimately at the very end of it, the Battle of Passchendaele. So you got all these little battles happening in between, well, in between to the end objective. And even now, it's it's so hard to comprehend the scale of which war, warfare was was occurring. Of course, from the North Sea all the way down through through Belgium, of course, France down to Switzerland. You know, this isn't just like open warfare, we think, say, let's say of the Napoleonic Wars, where you think of all the battles through, you know, Portugal and Spain, you know, Salamanca, um, all the way up to, um, of course, the Pyrenees and through into, uh, you know, to, to, you know, sort of southern France, all these kind of battles occurring. You have to remember that this is, this is static warfare in the First World War. You've got two sides pinned in, in huge, really strong, prominent defensive positions in most cases. And... This is a continuous battle. Like the the Western Front battle, if you will, starts you know in August fourteen and continues on till November nineteen eighteen. It doesn't really stop, of course, bar <clears throat> let's say in place on Christmas Day, uh, be pedantic, nineteen fourteen. But that battle rumbles on for the whole time. So all these battles we talk of, like we've talked, you know, some of the battles you mentioned, and um, you know, like everyone always thinks of the Somme when you think of the First World War. These these are battles, but they're all taking place as part of one bigger battle over a much more prolonged amount of time. That's actually quite mad to think of. And I know ultimately at the end of this podcast, we're going to come towards, you know, the numbers of casualties and so forth, but it's just, you have to try and get that mentality and just think the scale of this is just seismic. It's so, so mad to just think of the scale of it. It's nothing like battles since, like you think of you know, the second world war, let's try to touch on very briefly. We have, you know, the, the operation overlord landing Normandy, it's not one big static line 
that barely moves. Uh, and there is all these different small battles, you know, there's D-Day itself onto Khan and then working towards, you know, the Netherlands market garden, so forth, obviously into Germany. But this, this is a battle that barely moves. You know, the, the actual first world war in the Western front obviously barely moves. And then Passchendaele is one of the big battles as part of this huge sort of umbrella of a war that's, that's happening. It, it's, it's so hard to comprehend, uh, comprehend even a hundred years on it, it. It really, the mind boggles. It really does. Yeah, and it does. And like, I said, I, I try and get over there about three, four times a year if I can. And I, every time I go over there, even though the ground hasn't changed, yes, there's new buildings and, you know, it isn't that sea of mud anymore. It's it's still hard. Even just stood there going, i got no idea really what this place was actually like. Um you know, all I can see is the ground. So if they say, oh, there was a, I don't know, a pillbox on over there and there was 500 casualties from this pillbox, but I can stand there and look at it. Sometimes the pillbox might still be there or the blockhouse might still be there. Um, I can look at it and look at the ground and go, yeah, well, there's no wonder why there was like 500 casualties just to take out that pillbox because they had no chance whatsoever. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. But anyway, <clears throat> when I mentioned earlier on about this called Mara Mud, now this creates a lot of problems. Obviously, it creates problems to troop movement, and it also creates problems for the artillery. So remember, we're moving, you know, I think the artillery back then, I think you got maximum range on the good guns, well, the bigger gun's about 2,000 yards, really. Um, but they need to move those guns up. So this is where Goff was failing because he wasn't learning his lessons from the Battle of the Somme. Um, he was down on the Somme and he didn't learn or take on board some of the lessons he could have taken away from it. So when Pilkham Ridge had been taken and the next bound had started to the next ridge. Well, he's got to bring his artillery up. And the problem was the artillery was struggling to move through the mud. So it was creating casualties. So without the artillery fire, the infantry have got no covering fire from the artillery. So they're having to fight off counterattacks all by themselves, or the guns just aren't getting through at all. And it, it, it just leads to a lot of problems and a lot of bad decisions. And that's where... Good old General Paul, uh, uh, General Plummer comes in because he he was like the man who sorted out Messines, and he'd also learnt lessons from the Somme. And where Goff was given these sort of unrealistic um, objectives, where he's basically just turning around saying, "You need to go for that ridge," but the thing is, that next ridge might be three miles away. So you're expecting that, that infantry to go and fight three miles of ground that's heavily defended, plus you've had all that shell fire as well. So they've got to move through that terrain, but also the artillery is not catching up with you. So you've got no cover from the artillery. Or when the artillery does catch up with you, they're then going to the next objective and then they've got to move on again. And, and this is where this is becoming a real problem. But, Plummer comes in, he gets um eBay, he takes over from Goff and he goes, right, this is what's gonna happen. So Palmer comes in around about October time. So when the uh, Battle of um 
uh, Messines Ridge is happening. So the back, not, not Messines Ridge, sorry, um, Menin Road, or you could call it the Messines Ridge as well. But the Battle of Menin Road, he came in round about that time. And what Palmer did, instead of him giving these unrealistic objectives, he just turned around, point blankly said, right, the attacking force, the objectives are 900 metre bounds, where's a thousand yard bounds. So each objective is going to be 1,000 yards from that start line. So that's roughly around about 900 metres, give or take a couple of metres from that. So with that, what he's effectively doing, the infantrymen have now got a a more realistic target um, or objective, I should say, rather. The artillery can start catching up because by doing that 900 metre bound, they're taking that position. They're still getting the covering fire from the artillery. But what they're also doing is now they can actually leave guns behind to still retain that fire while the artillery is moving up to give support for the next but next 900 meter bound. So it's it, you know it's it, instead of trying to run, they're now they're now sort of jogging forward. So the artillery is now keeping up with the infantry. And if there is a problem trying to get the guns up, then they just hold. And that's when you start seeing the Battle of Menin Road. There's, there's, that's also come at the right time as well, because the Germans are putting in counterattacks up at the Menin Road and they're really trying to push us back. But they're struggling because the artillery is is made its way up because of this new plan that, Palm, that uh, Plume has got. So now he's done that. That's what makes this battle a, a success and subsequently gives us Passchendaele. Um, that was taken by the Canadians, actually, Passchendaele, because the uh, to so uh, Brunsinder Ridge, the Australians went in on that. Um, then the British took over again, and then the Canadians actually went into Passchendaele. So there is um, a very much involves the commonwealth so it's not just the british here we do have representation of the commonwealth and also you've got the french to the north as well as the french first army to the north on our left flank they're they're also involved as well making that push up as well i'm glad that you mentioned the canadians because <clears throat> i wanted to um definitely drop in at some point the uh the film that was made a number of years ago because i remember buying that on dvd <clears throat> i'm guessing but it must be around 2009 something like that and I remember watching it with the then girlfriend, now wife, and I remember just thinking, "This is a bit of a, a bit of a strange story. It doesn't really make that much sense. It's a little bit out there." Of course, this was at a point when I wasn't involved in living history. I didn't particularly know much about World War One. Just held a, a hard on interest in it, but subsequently learning about the First World War, specifically about Passchendaele, you know that that film's complete pie in the sky. Uh, well, I do anyway. Uh, that's my my thoughts on it. But Pete... one thing I do like, one thing I do like about that film, the only thing mm. I like about that film, because it is a bit of a naff film, because it's got a rubbish <laughs> love story in it, um, is they're fighting in the craters because that's yes. what passion that that is the epitome of passion. Dad, we're not in trenches. We're not in trenches trying to go across this open ground. By that point of the battle, they call it the Battle of the Craters because the blokes that they are using craters to take shelters in, take shelter in, and they're doing that for months and months and months through the course of the battle. Because, yeah, we we might be using German trenches here and there where we've taken them and they're serviceable, but in certain areas they just can't use the German trenches anymore. So we got to use the shell craters to shelter in, and I like and I did like that represented in it, sort of trying to dramatize the. Battle of the Craters, so to speak. Yeah, I, I really like that touch. That that's the only saving grace, really. I find with the film, um, there is that typical love story that they have to put into every single film they do about war, which is really annoying. Um, but yeah, it was it was a nice touch. It was good to see that was, and it was nice that it was portrayed in the way that Passchendaele was. It was a real muddy, grim affair, of course. And like I said at the start, you know, we always think when you you know when you ask someone about. The, the Great War, pic, you know, picture in your mind's eye what a World War One battlefield looks like. Passchendaele is almost nine times out of ten what people will, will describe to you, and that's because the amount of photography that was that was conducted uh, at the time on the on the battlefield itself. But with Passchendaele, what 
what was the result of it? How how did the the sort of Commonwealth forces come come out of Passchendaele in terms of uh, losses, amount of um, sort of land gained, and so forth? So the furthest point uh, is about eight miles. So they got about eight miles of ground at the furthest point. Um, it's still sort of bowed out like a like a salient still uh, by the end of it on the sixth uh, of November. That's when the battle sort of officially finished. Um, but for that eight miles, uh, we suffered about three hundred thousand casualties. Um, that's 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 Commonwealth. That is um, so about three hundred thousand casualties, and the Germans two hundred and sixty thousand two hundred and sixty thousand casualties by the end of it as well. And that is all in a period of what three months, maybe four months. That's just nuts. Yeah. Yeah, because the offensive starts on the 31st of July. So you're basically right at the end of July. So we're basically was June, July. So we basically just say August, didn't we, really? So August, September, October, then the very beginning, three months. Yeah. So in three, so you're looking at 100,000 men each month if you're splitting it in, if you're just sort of splitting it down into months. Yeah, that's just, that's just mad. Like, it always leaves me lost for words. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at recent operations in Afghanistan and Iraq, where you find, you know, uh, tw- twelve guys you know being killed in this engagement. Uh, of course, that's twelve guys too many, but that is just such a small drop in the ocean in comparison to what was going on in the in the First World War. I mean, that yeah, was just you, completely nuts. Yeah, well, if you put it into like a comparison, the British Army today is what maybe ninety thousand, maybe ninety five thousand, including reservists. So that's the British Army today three times over and we still got men left over. Yeah. It, it's, in, it's incredibly sober and it's, I'll just hope that we never, ever, ever see anything of its kind ever again. And I really hope that from history, we, we really learn from it and it doesn't happen again because those numbers are just, when you say, you know, 200,000, 300,000 blokes wounded, I mean, of, of which how many were killed, you should imagine is a large portion of that. It's just, just frankly, mad. It it really is. Uh, I know we talk about you know battles all the time, whether it's on on the on the podcast or indeed on YouTube on documentaries and so forth. But it's it's just completely completely mad. It really is. You, I don't think, regardless of however long you spend studying, you know, a particular battle, Passchendaele or even a psalm. Of course, we talk about the the first day of the psalm, how bad it was, which it was. I don't think we'll ever quite comprehend. You know, there's there's three hundred thousand families there who have had a knock-on effect from Passchendaele, who wouldn't see their son, their brother or father again, or they'd come back and they'd have, you know, wounds and it affect them for the rest of their lives. They probably couldn't work. It's just, it's just slaughter on industrial scale. It leaves me lost for words, which I know is terrible yeah. for a podcast, but. Well, yeah. Was... But then we have to ask ourselves then, but although, you know, that 300,000 casualties, was it actually successful? Was it, was it an actual success though? And to me, it's a, it's a yes and no answer. It's definitely, it definitely wasn't in vain as as with any of the sort of, you know, operations of the First World War. You know, the Somme, you know, Hague and, and Co. definitely learned from that. The introduction of all arms warfare evolved into eventually winning the First World War. So there's no doubt, you know, it wasn't done in vain. But yeah, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a success because they got Passchendaele. They mm. they they achieved the first part of their objective. So, in terms of statistics, what are we dealing with, and what's the numbers of of casualties, and what's the number of um, men who've lost their life as a result of of the Battle of Passchendaele? Uh, so, this has been disputed over the years, um, but we're looking at somewhere in the realms of three hundred thousand British Commonwealth soldiers, and possibly 260,000 Germans, but some mate, some do believe that it was a lot more than that. Um, some estimating more in the 400,000 mark. Um, so it's, it's whatever side of the fence that you're sitting on is uh, how many casualties there was, but either way, it's a ridiculous amount of casualties. And it's, it's quite crazy because just a quick little nose at, at Wikipedia and my research in the, in, on the way up to filming this, 
you know, British casualties range from, and I quote, 240,000 to 448,614. And I laugh in disbelief because that's such a broad uh, scope that that reading into that, that tells me that they actually don't know how many people have died as a result of the battle, which is, which is awful because that also tells you they don't particularly know where most of the bodies are either, if we're being completely frank. Yeah, and that's why you got things like the Meningate, um, you've got the wall down in Plug Street, you've got the New Zealanders on Messine Ridge at their memorial, all the names on there, and the wall at Tynecott Cemetery as well, just because they can't find them. And not that they can't find them, some of them might have a grave, but that'll be the grave where it says, a soldier of the Great War. You know, they've got no name, nothing like that, but their name is up on the wall somewhere. So they may have been found, and they have a grave, just that their name isn't on the grave. Or, you know, as we well know, I think on average, up in that sector alone, I think they're still finding something like in the realms of 20 bodies a year or 20 remains each year of soldiers in the sector. I remember we went to Waterloo in 2018 and on the way to Waterloo, we travelled in a minibus, there was about 10 of us in the 60th who went and we, we stopped off at uh, Tynecott and I'm almost saying this with a lump in my throat because it was it was a really emotional visit. I'd never been before. I know Pete, you've been there a couple of times to say the least before that. Many of the other guys hadn't. And walking into that cemetery was just unreal. There's probably no word to better describe it. It was just it was so hard to believe that it was actually the final resting place of all these people, these you know, sort of white headstones going off into the distance sloping down the hill and the remains of the German pillboxes you know, we all kind of walked around for, for 20 minutes on our own each doing our own thing and taking it all in and we laid a wreath and it wasn't until we actually went to leave and walked back through the sort of archway that you then realized that actually the gravestones are just a very small part of it the actual main part of the cemetery is on the wall that you mentioned earlier and it's those mm. all those names i mean they're just like almost just there's so many of them it's just yeah that was really, really moving for for me. I, I couldn't actually quite believe and and and, it, and uh, understand it. It was just just absolute nuts. But that's that's largely as a result of you know these you know, these guys not being found, and that's 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 horrendous. I mean, no real closure for the family, no final resting place, but solace in the fact, as you said, that you know every year, um, you know, guys are being found, and that you know with the, the sort of fantastic science that we have are, are you know available to us now guys are being you know sort of identified and they're given the you know the due burial that they they should rightfully have and the families are you know being formed albeit 100 years too late but you know they're getting the sort of um justice that they deserve should we say yeah uh, like when you're saying about the you know, the closure for families it, it's reminded me of when uh general palmer opened the men in gate because it was actually Poma that Poma that op that he actually uh did the opening when it officially opened he gave a speech and he knew what the situation was with the unknown graves obviously this is why the men in gate and the wall at Tynecott was made but in his speech he actually um said I'm not going to quote it word for word because I can't remember it word for word but along the lines of he says uh they're no longer lost because they're now here. Meaning that, you know, their names are now on the wall. So they, they have their memorial, you know, that they have their place of remembrance. So they're no longer lost. They're now here. And it is incredibly moving. I, I should imagine for the families, as you said, that was a great sort of piece of closure for them and a sacrifice, you know, it isn't forgotten. We, we are quite rightfully so talk about these battles and, and experiences guys went through on, on the podcast, you know, from Tom's to time, as well as covering it in our YouTube series. But where did, where did the sort of war uh, go from the battle of Passchendaele? So one thing, you know, we've just gone over the insane casualty list on both sides. Um, what we've got to ask ourselves, was it, was it a success? I always say it's a yes and no answer, um, regardless of the casualty list. Um, 
they at the at the furthest point we took about eight miles of ground at the furthest point. So you got three hundred thousand British Commonwealth soldiers for eight miles of ground. They took Passchendaele. They took the Passchendaele Ridge. So that part of the offensive was a success. But did they take the second? Well, the I say the second objective. I say the end game objective. Did they accomplish it? Now, can you remember what that was, Steve? Is this the U-boat pens again? It is, exactly, because that was the end goal. The end goal was to get up to those U-boat pens, to cut them off, and to deny U-boats to the English Channel. They never made it because the battle stopped on the 6th of November and it didn't go any further. So I think the question begs to be asked, why didn't they push on to the U-boat pens? What, what stopped them from ultimately reaching that destination? Some of it was momentum. Um, as already been mentioned, we've got somewhere in the realms of like 300,000 casualties. And, you know, that's a massive blow to an army. Um, so it's the momentum to push forward from that because we're now missing 300 odd thousand men. The second part of this also is the Italian front opens up. Um, there is fighting going down on Italy, down in Italy, but they need more men. So Haig has got to pull out some of the veteran battalions that have just fought at Passchendaele, bearing in mind. So they've just gone through Passchendaele and they've gone, right, we need to pull you out the line and we need to send you down to Italy because they need veteran battalions down there. And that's one of the main reasons why this this push doesn't go any further because we don't have the resources or the manpower because they've now had to focus it on the Italian front. And also, we hold this ground. You know, once we were there, we were there. But then, when the spring offensive came along in 1918, that pushed us all the way back over that eight miles of ground to where we started from, and then we had to fight for it all over again in the hundred day offensive. So within twelve months of or thereabouts of the Battle of Passchendaele coming to its its kind of end in that sense. The war comes to an end. So like we were saying earlier, it's not necessarily in vain, but it must have been a real bitter blow to lose that ground that they'd taken in the in the spring offensive, but then in the hundred days, retake it again. But of course that was the kind of final act in the um in the actual uh, you know, sort of First World War in that sense. But it's been really interesting. I've, I've really enjoyed that. I mean, I'll, I've known about the Battle of Passchendaele. I've known how much of a quagmire it was, as we all know, and to an extent how the, what the casualties were. But to actually go into the gubbins of it, I never, definitely never knew anything about those U-boat pens. That's something I'll certainly remember. I could never really see that have been typically a, a kind of uh, objective in that sense. But it makes total sense with what was going on. You know, we think of like the Lusitania and the U-boats, you know, running amok in the, uh, in, you know, the Channel North Sea and out into the Atlantic as well. Certainly, certainly really interesting. I've enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, it, and this is literally, like it, it's quite literally a whistle-stop tour of the Battle of Pashtar because like I said at the very beginning, it's so intricate with all the little minor battles that are going on and like the increases of, like what each division was doing and everything like that. And it just turns into like a rambling mess if I did that. Um, so I've just tried to keep it as, as basic as I possibly could. And I, I hopefully I've accomplished that. <laughs> We've well, certainly kept it basic enough so, so I can understand it. But I, I mean, if anyone wants to delve further into the Battle of Passchendaele, where would be best for them to go and find out more about it? Is there any books or uh, documentaries or even any any films or anything or anything online that you could recommend perhaps? There is a couple of documentaries kicking around on YouTube. Um, there's one or two on there, which uh, I'm not, I'm not going to name them. <laughs> there's one or two on there that are okay, but, the information ain't quite right, but um, but there's an old documentary about Passchendaele. Although it's it's a, it's an all right documentary, it's got good information in it. They don't really talk about Passchendaele. They they seem to focus more on the build up to Passchendaele and the Messines offensive, and then it's sort of like Passchendaele's at the end. But that's the best one out of all of them, I think. Um, 
but there's loads there's various books out there as well if you want to read about it there's loads of veteran accounts and historians that have uh, written, they've written countless books on it um for me personally i'll try and find as many veteran accounts as you can because it's you know, I've said a few times before, it's like historians are very, very good. You know, historians know their stuff, but with a historian, they generally, they, they're they good at knowing the broader picture of it. So they'll do a massive overview. Um, I think with when it comes to things like Passchendaele, is, is really try and find, say, like a particular regiment or a particular division and look at what they're doing and the actions they're taking part in because... It was such a colossal offensive. I think it's you're never going to get a complete and utter overview of it, if you know what I mean, like from an intricacy point of view. Um, so I think I think that would that would be my advice. Either look at like an overview from a historian, say you got a bit more of an in-depth thing, um, or look at what a particular division's doing. Or even indeed a regiment or well a battalion, what what one's battalion's time during that offensive. Yeah, certainly delve into the war diaries where you can, first hand accounts, that's where you're gonna learn primary source information. Just very quickly while we've been on here, I've looked at the Wikipedia page, that's stacked out of information too. So if you want to find out more about uh, the Battle of Passchendaele, then uh, that's certainly going to be a good place to start. Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. I hope you guys have enjoyed listening. I've really enjoyed being a part of this and uh, extend my thanks, of course, to Pete for giving the uh, benefit of his, his knowledge on this um, f- fascinating uh, topic of the uh, First World War, the Battle of Passchendaele. Really appreciate it. And guys, as ever, all the links to everything you need for the World of Living History UK can all be found in the description of this podcast. And all it leaves me to say is until next time, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.